Welcome to Making Conversations, a podcast from makers Gemma Millen and Robin Galway. Today we are speaking with contemporary jeweller Anne Earls Boylan. So today we are recording episode six of our second series and we are joined by the amazing Anne Earls Boylan who is a woman of many talents, an artist and an art jeweller and who teaches at the University of Ulster. So welcome Anne. Lovely to be here. So could you tell us a bit about your background and how you came into the world of jewellery? Did you have quite a creative family background? I always think about this and can't really answer it in a straightforward way because I think I'm an accidental jeweller. That's what I used to title it as and I, I go back to that because I should have been doing lots of other things but strangely enough flat was never quite enough for me and as a kid I grew up in a musical household more so than artistic and funny enough one of the things that I always remember as very inspirational was my dad had this amazing AA DIY fold out booklet on how to make furniture and I used to as a as a primary school kid fold it out you know it had a lovely little clip fastener on it and fold it out like it was a bible but I just loved the whole thing I loved the drawings I loved the way things might be I loved imagining and I would sit forever and I've forgotten about this until now I would sit forever drawing floor plans of rooms Really? So how I ended up, you know, in the world of making very small things probably took a lot of time to come about. It's not something that anybody speaks about. My grandmother was a maker of clothes because she grew up in the war years and her mother died when she was eight. So she brought up three little sisters and then her father died. So they were orphaned really young. And as a result of that, she was sent to live with nuns and learned to crochet and make clothes and when she married my grandfather on my mum's side she was incredibly resourceful and they had a reasonably sized family so she would make dresses out of old shirts and when I was very young she lived next door so she would sit doing these things and I would watch and I think by osmosis you just kind of watch people whether it's crochet hooks, whether it's knitting needles, whether it's her treadle sewing machine, which used to freak the lining out of me because you get your feet going on those things, they go so fast. But she would let you kind of watch, not necessarily have a go. And I think just by osmosis, maybe that side of making might have been interesting. But in school, there was never any discussion about, you know, making. Probably think that it's to do with childhood play and maybe the other thing is being locked out in the summers to give my mother peace was great because me and my <laughs> siblings used to go and make dens in our garage and we'd make floors in it. We'd get trestles and build them upwards. So whether it was large scale or whether it was small scale, I think that construction maybe might have been the start of the seed of I'm just more interested in this building malarkey. It doesn't matter about the scale, materials that combine to do something unusual. And I think maybe that's as accurate as I can be about what lay behind it. There was no other rational choice. <laughs> Did you go straight then from school into university to study jewellery? I applied with other sixth formers. We all went on a day trip to a foundation. What they used to do was you would have a day uh, or a morning and you'd go and draw and then they'd call you in one by one for interview. And so we went on the bus from the hallowed 
Armagh City up to Jordanstown as it was then because at that point it was a polytechnic. We didn't have university status. I couldn't really imagine any other career. I'd become really interested in history of art as well at sixth form. I did play the cello right up, but you know, I was okay, but I wasn't exceptional. I kind of enjoyed that, but yeah, it was like love and pain all at the same, but so is art, you know? And I realized that it probably wasn't my future career, much as I enjoyed it. And at this interview, I was told I was accepted and not to speak to anybody else, which was quite interesting. So mm. I went and expressed how exciting this was, even though I didn't know what it really meant, apart from that I was good at drawing from life. I wasn't an imaginative painter. I like facts. I'm not really into sort of inventing stories on the canvas, which is a skill in itself and it's amazing. But I knew I didn't have that. I'm not that kind of fictional storyteller. I wasn't very strong at other subjects unless they were factual. So things like geography or art history, things that have facts I loved. And so to find myself at an interview where somebody actually thought I was good for the first time and had something to say and, you know, offered me a place was a bit of a shock. And once I got there, I think like everybody else, I didn't know much about the three-dimensional side, but I found the workshop and this lovely guy called Alan. And if he's still alive, thank you so much, Alan, for putting up with me living in your workshop, <laughs> chopping, laminating, cutting, doing whatever. But I, pretty much when I found there, I lived in it. I loved it to pieces. I couldn't identify why. But I did know that that would be something that I would quite like to progress with, despite coming from that more fashiony background and having worked in my aunt's clothing shop. I just kind of really missed, I don't know why, I think when you are a maker, once you find that, you realise your hands are busy and this is where they need to be. And it was like a kid in a sweet shop, really, if I'm honest. You are originally from Armagh. I am. Did you have to move up to Belfast to go to the Polytechnic? Or was yes. it, yeah, so was that quite a big change for you environmentally as well? I think in those days, that was like, you know, nowadays going over to England or London yeah. to study, which sounds really bizarre, but yeah, we didn't, nobody had cars. You know, for example, I wouldn't have learned to drive until I moved back from London, which, mm -hmm. you know, I was in my late 20s, early 30s. That was the day of you got the bus or the train everywhere. I wasn't nervous. I don't really remember being upset or anxious over going. You just got on with it and you went and it was I guess your foundation year was a little bit like an extension of being at school, but not. Did I enjoy my foundation year? It was over so quickly. And I hung out with musicians. You know, I had a couple of really interesting opportunities to hear live music that I, you know, even though it was the middle of the troubles, and <laughs> you really didn't go out a lot. You really didn't because there wasn't much to go to. And yeah. uh, when you did go out, you were really always in groups and having to be quite careful. So it was like an underground kind of scene then. And yet it doesn't seem like my life, which is interesting. So I back and it wasn't my life in my head really, but it was. We all lived through it together. That camaraderie's moved on, I guess. You didn't have massive, massive choice in what you did. So therefore you tended to focus on your work. Maybe that's my nature as well. So, you know, it could be a bit of both. Did you do your degree then in the Polytechnic or did you have to go somewhere else to do it? Was it continuation on from the foundation? There's an interesting question. At that time in history, which it feels like now, we all, having done foundation, applied to do your degree course. The rule was that if you were accepted on to a course here, 
then that's what you had to do. If you were rejected, then they might fund you to go to England or Scotland or Wales, whatever. But then that was very much the way. And I was lucky enough really to, to get funding. My dad and mum worked really hard and they wouldn't have had a huge amount of money to be able to send us if there hadn't been grants. So, you know, I'm from that privileged, I suppose, generation in a sense. Maybe it was just my nature to work. But also, I think in the background, you felt a, a sense of responsibility. You were being given this opportunity and grant and you did feel I'm responsible for honouring receiving this grant. So therefore, I should make an effort. You know, I, I kind of always think I've been that way inclined. So I wouldn't have squandered the opportunity anyhow. Maybe that's a good way to be. I don't know. Maybe it's boring. That's the other side of it. But no, I, I used it well. Yeah, and I'm very grateful for it. And I hope it's paid back to the community. Did you continue on then with the Polytechnic or did you go over to England? I did. I yeah. applied to study jewellery because I'd enjoyed the making side of my foundation course so much. I didn't want to be a sculptor. I didn't really like making the armatures and playing with, sorry, Gemma, muck, <laughs> mud. I didn't really like that <laughs> feeling. And some people, most people love it. I'm not a gardener either. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> but yeah, I loved resistant materials, hard materials. And even though I must say, I did an awful lot of making clothes. And I think that's that was always my sideline. I did that because I was small and I didn't like any of the clothes that were about. So I had to learn to make my own, which I was quite happy to do. So I didn't really see the point when I could sort of do that outside, not expertly, but enough to survive. And it was fine, but it wasn't enough. So I think it was resistant materials that might have been the reason. And jewellery was the place where I could see that working with resistant materials made sense to me. And it did have an affinity with the body. And having briefly touched on that there was that history of my grandmother making clothes. And, you know, I think that my aunt having a, a shop, which I did work in, that probably fed through a little bit to wanting to keep it body centred. Mm-hmm. You travelled from Armagh to Jordanstown and then going to London during that time what was it like to be Northern Irish Irish going to London how were you received there was it an issue was it something that was even considered then I understand that at times it was or for some people it would have been but was it for you I really found do you know this is going to sound odd I thought I was I fitted in better there than I ever did in Northern Ireland despite the fact I wouldn't say I'm not Northern Irish, but it wasn't so much London. It was the people I was with, actually. (laughs) And once I, you know, when I went over there, I didn't have a massive choice for a master's. So I'd finished my degree. I'd managed to get through that. And I had at that stage a choice of two different postgraduate courses. One was in Glasgow. And I remember going there for the interview. Stunning, stunning building. A great course. And it was quite generalist. And I remember being torn. Which will I do? Gosh, this is awful. You know, because when you're accepted to more than one place, it's a nightmare as much as not being anywhere. But both very high profile. Love the idea of both of them. But I can remember thinking Glasgow is a little too comfortable because it's a little too like here. I think I needed, personally needed to 
be outside of my comfort zone. And I wouldn't necessarily have had the language or the full understanding of what that meant. But I can look back now and say, no, I I did need to be out of my comfort zone for whatever reason. And while I was a student and undergraduate, I had met myself and a friend had always gone in the summers over to Holland to work in the bulb fields to earn some money. And that, I suppose that contributed to my three years. And I would have been traveling up to Amsterdam from outside Harlem on a weekly basis. You know, we would have gone up and looked at galleries. And so I would have been incredibly conscious of places like Gallery Ra, which had just started. And this was really, you know, this uh, I wanted to study there at one point. And then on my last year doing that, I met more mature girls from Glasgow and they had actually gone to study graphics and their experience hadn't quite been the experience that we would have working there over the summer. Uh, so based on their advice, I pulled back from that and decided London probably was the better way to go. Um, culturally, no, I know, I know. Yeah, it wasn't. It sounds very strange to say, but I think it was the first time where I felt I was with a cohort of people that I got and they got me. Mm-hmm. And that really meant that it didn't matter where in the world it would be. We just bumped along together and we're back in touch again since mm-hmm. COVID and lockdown. Well, one of one or two of us always kept in touch, but we've been doing lovely, you know, sort of Zooms at least once a month, catching up with each other. And, you know, that's really nice to be able to sort of at this stage of my career still maintain. Yeah, that's wonderful. So there wasn't much of a stigma then about where you had come from, about going into this new space. Would you say that you were all quite a like-minded and open-minded group? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, look, beyond the the hallowed walls of the Royal College, who knows? I don't think my accent is very strong, so therefore nobody really picks up on it. They think you're from somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic, mostly, so they don't quite know. I never really found it a major problem. And maybe the only thing that I would say in hindsight is that on reflection, when I finished, there were lots of joining groups in the Crafts Council, etc. And my personal issue was maybe not great. I had a bit of a thing about joining groups at that stage coming from here because I was so wary of being part of any group because I didn't want anyone speaking on my behalf. But that's a troubles related issue. And I think, you know, there are elements of that that I still have, but I'm I'm getting through it. And that might have been the bigger issue. And not getting news, that was interesting. We didn't always get the news about home. And, you know, bizarrely, the most important or the most evident place where our cultural difference would shine would be at Gate 49 at Heathrow. And you'd be (laughs) sitting there in the unclean area. And, you know, that was quite funny in one regard once you got there because everybody was feeling the same way but in another you know that's where difference always became apparent aside from that not really I would just be interested in hearing about how your parents would have thought about you going to London to study and would they have been concerned about your safety at all I we don't really talk about it maybe they were but I mean I checked in every week in the beginning and I think I probably maintained that I think they were quite My parents, like probably many of that generation, never cozied us or cosseted us. I mean, I mentioned being out in the garage building things. I mean, we literally, my brother, the genius he is, used to rig lighting up and they never knew what we were doing. We could have electrocuted ourselves. And and so we grew up in a generation where risk was part of living. And I don't think they imagined that this was abnormal. You know, it's a normal thing to have to leave home at a particular stage and fly the coop and do your own thing and it's a healthy thing in fact I'd probably be worried if my own daughter didn't want to do that in a sense which she knows 
So I don't know that they were, it's not something they've ever voiced and I'm eternally grateful to them for not being nervous or projecting that in any way. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if I was going ahead with blinkers on but happy, they'd have just gone fine. Yeah, but I knew they were there, you know, and I guess knowing that you have your parents in the background, that they'll support you, even if they don't fully understand what you're at, they'll support you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was probably quite quite a good thing quite a comforting thing to have in the background even if it was only a small bit my mum came over to stay sometimes which was hilarious she's great at getting herself into situations but they're always really good ones and they're always really bizarre and fab stories so (laughs) but yeah it gave her um, a little bit of risk and freedom in her life ironically which was really nice to be able to share so yeah I don't think I ever thought of myself as brave I think I kind of just thought of what's the need and if you're going to be worried about being brave well I am not I'm more worried now than I was then <laughs> I was quite reckless I'm thinking back yeah on reflection I was probably quite a risk taker at that stage in my life in some ways but I just felt I had to push myself that little bit for whatever reason Obviously, the RCA has quite a reputation as being an excellent place to go and do your master's. How did you find the teaching style was different? Did you notice or feel there was a change of growth in how you created or was it pretty consistent throughout foundation degree and master's? That's a good question. I think it was a bit like in terms of mentioning the peers and the support that we all gave each other was fantastic. And likewise with the staff, if you needed advice, you asked. We had some amazing visitors pop in. We had some experiences amongst ourselves as the college was quite small. I think there were, what, 600 people maximum at any given time. So everybody knew everybody else. And it was across at the year I went in first year, it was three years. And then I was the first of a two year cohort. So it was really a tiny community. And the staff and the students were, I won't say colleagues together, but we we kind of work together if that makes sense there wasn't that hierarchy in your head we all respected each other on a different way and a different level and we all agreed and disagreed with each other regularly but you know there was a good healthy discourse because you can't grow unless you understand why and how you disagree with somebody that's how we all formulate arguments and opinions and question ourselves and it's really good to have to stand back and ask am I right or where are the flaws in my argument or what I'm thinking or what I'm working with. You have to look from the outside in on your work all the time. Um, otherwise, you just become a little bit complacent. And maybe that's OK for a lot of people. I find it hard to stay in my head in one place because I live in a world where things change all the time and I tend to make in response to change or things I think are about to change or conversations that I feel should be being or should be happening that aren't. And so I'm kind of a now and forward thinker rather than a I make in the past. And I, you know, I find that the Royal College probably was a good place to meet people that were similar. I can't say I liked the work I made there. It was a little too watered down for me, maybe. But then there were other things that I benefited from and you can't do everything at once. So I think I I did a trade off and many people say the same thing. You can't concentrate on building networks and make fantastic work all at the same time. Yeah, you sometimes need to pull back when you're intensely working on something important and not be part of any social media or big discussions because clarity of thought is a really hard thing to fight for. I notice it as much now as it was then, just in a very different way. So 
you know, I, I have learned that I should have forgiven myself a lot more for maybe not liking the work I made much there. It was competent, but I didn't find it filled my soul personally. It ticked boxes and that's not a thing I like to do. I like to be a little bit more active. Could you uh, describe a sort of visual evolution of your work? Ooh, that's a toughie, Robin. I would have made things that were, again, trying to fit into my way of thinking how I might like to wear work. I never really limited myself to a material um, because I love them all. And if I were working with a metal and learned a skill, that was good, but I needed more. So I would go and play with that in the background and see what else it could do and probably obliterate it or ruin it, but then find something else new to say within it. And we worked to projects a lot. And some of those would have been machine-based, some of them hand-based. And I think I kind of just spent my time enjoying learning. Uh, we also had to do tech drawing. And funnily enough, I was really quite good at that, which was, yeah, bizarre. But yeah, I always loved the things that were a bit more of a challenge. And so I went at the end of my first year, I made headpieces. I made earrings out of binding wire and colored metal. So I went down to sculpture to find out how to do that. In the second year, I actually made one of the funniest pieces that I really enjoyed making was a ring made out of Meccano bits, um, a battery and a little light bulb that you could flick off and on because it was like flashy, haha, um, and some earphones, um, mm -hmm. strangely enough. So I made a piece which hung from your ears like a pair of earphones front and back. So I think I was quite keen to experiment what wearing work might look like rather than it just being a brooch or a ring. That's still was the case at the end of my degree where I made essentially I worked in wood because I always had an underlying theme about value and I was never convinced that value is all about we perceive diamonds and gold to be expensive and valuable and maybe they are but also maybe they're not maybe other things are equally valuable when you frame them in the right way and maybe they should and it's funny now that we're going through all of this thinking about conscious consumption of materials because I've always had that in the back of my mind but it was never popular so I worked with ebony and boxwood and pearwood cherrywood anything along those lines where it was a nice hardwood and metals basically because I felt these kinds of things are what we always used to use but to try to find the magic in it and the way to construct it in a different way, that's what floated my boat. And maybe that goes back to my dad's DIY book. I don't know. But it was interesting. How do you slot something? How do you bind it? How do you construct it without using glues? But primitive techniques that we've always known about, what we've forgotten about, and how do, do jewellery skills fit into that? Yeah, I think I still hold elements of that true, uh, but in very different materials. I'm not a material snob. And in a way, that's maybe a bad thing. <laughs> but yeah, I, I now my life, I love a piece of 22 karat gold just as much as I love a nail or a piece of plastic. I'm not prejudiced, quite yeah. tolerant, material tolerance. And what type of jewellery do you wear? <clears throat> or what type of jewellery did you wear as a child? You know, how has that evolved? How has that changed for you? The first item I ever consciously remember wearing I do remember a boyfriend buying, buying me a silver bangle. Uh, I don't know what happened to it. 
but uh, that was a long time ago uh, and that was at school. I never really wore anything aside from that when it broke, it broke. And in my first year, I think at undergraduate level, we went on a big trip over to London, whoa. And at that stage we had, uh, or London had the Crafts Council Gallery on the Haymarket. And I remember going in and buying a knot ring in silver. In fact, that wasn't with first year, that was with my dad and his school group. And they went over to London to listen to musicals because he taught music and um, I went with them. And that was what that was. I'm wrong, my memory's flawed. See, I'm getting old. Uh, I'd never seen work like that. And it was just a simple silver knot ring. And it was the first thing I ever bought. And I did wear that actually for many, many years. So I don't actually know what happened to it, Gemma, but maybe it's in a box deeply buried. And I think um, that's... I don't tend to wear a lot of jewellery except when I'm doing nothing. I can't work, for example, with any jewellery on. That would do mm -hmm. my head in. I have to take everything off, jewellery's off. My fingers need the freedom. I can't do clickety-clack. <laughs> I can't have things get in the way. So I will wear it if I'm feeling like wearing it on a day. Yeah, so I think jewellery's an expression of your mood. I quite like things that create a conversation and I'm realizing now that actually that's a really great thing to do because it allows other people to converse with you that wouldn't otherwise. I've often found that even shopping sometimes if I have something on I'll get a comment and how nice is that to be able to open a conversation with somebody who you never normally would speak to and open their mind and eyes to what creativity could be. I think it's mood related yeah, even my wedding ring, I wear not all the time now, partly because I, I notice my fingers getting a little bit fatter. <laughs> so by the end of the day, they shrink a bit and I'll put them on, but I'm not very bound to particular things to wear. What is your wedding ring like then? Does that look like, Robin? You could, you might be able to describe it better. Yeah, it, it's gorgeous. Yeah. It's quite unusual. It's sort of a frosted gold. It has three triangle kind of cross sections in it and a lovely square stone but it's really it was one of the first things I think I noticed about you as our new teacher in first year it's beautiful what's frosted gold it's matte and one of the things I mentioned earlier it's 22 karat gold and it's not something I would have the luxury of working in very often but you know what's so beautiful is when you have I don't want to say a gift, but when you can actually, I'm not gifted. I mean, the gift of being able to work in something like 22 karat yellow. There's just the most, oh, I don't know, how do you describe it? It's like buttery, edible quality to it. And most people never get to see that state because people polish it up. And I tend to not do that because it's just, gorgeous and it you know when you wear that kind of work people do notice they do pass comment and I had somebody once in the VNA come up to me chase me around the shop and tell me that should be in the collection and it's kind of like what pardon and, you know and you don't know what to say but I actually think what she was responding to was the color and it has happened on other occasions. It's so stunning. And you realize that we've put monetary values on things that have other content, but we don't allow people to see that. And I would say it's similar with silver. There's the most stunning quality to fine silver in particular when it's just heated as this beautiful cloud white color. 
that you can, it's so soft and so beautiful. I mean, I know curators hate it because it oxidizes, but it's got some beautiful, beautiful qualities that people can't see very often unless we as makers let them see it. And for me, that ring and that series of pieces of work when I started working with really high carat metal, it allowed me to stop and just say, look, it's like a painter. You need to know when to stop sometimes. And for me, that was important to say, why should I be the only person to see this? And why should we as makers be the only folk to see this? It's stunning. Put it out there and see what happens because this is light refraction. And when you curve the surface or as Robin was saying, those rings that I made, um, my wedding and, and an engagement ring, which really is my engagement ring was lost there. So I had to make another one, which is the one mm -hmm. Robin was talking about. And it fits with the original ring. They're based on bobbins loosely, which go back to that history of sewing machines. So it's kind of a work through. It's not exactly like a bobbin, but it carries a thread. And I think a lot of the work I did at that period in time would have had silk threads wrapped around it as part of the neck piece but the bobbin would be the catch and the rings were really part of that series. You, you're conscious you have it on, it's big. I'm not wearing it today, just in case. <laughs> so, so that's, um, yeah, early morning, big hands, rings not on. But it's, it's funny, I used to hate the notion of rings. Apart from my little knot ring, I used to hate them. But you come to things at a point in your life when you're ready for them, but you sometimes do have to push yourself to remember it's not about making an ordinary what exists ring you need to make as an individual maker and all of us that are individual makers in the sector of craft and skill and design we are probably honoring the field better if we come to it with our own voice and there's plenty of production work out there and there's nothing wrong with that at all but what we need to bring is that difference that uniqueness and as conversations go on in life i realize that that's actually what people respond to and it becomes very sentimental to them because they know why it's made, that it's bespoke for them, that it might contain generations of other wedding rings and engagement rings for them. So it, it's their piece, but it's got their grandparents or their parents' DNA trace in it somewhere. And you realise, gosh, that's so special. These are things that when you're younger, you probably don't really think about. But as you move on in life, you realise, yeah, you have a responsibility if you're going to make something to make it count, to make it say something important. That's great. I'll have to get a picture of your ring because I'm so fascinated. <laughs> I have this image of what it looks like. And so I, I need to see what it looks like. So I'll, I'll email you later to ask. I'm going to get you to draw a picture of what you think it looks like. And then does it match up? <laughs> so after the RCA, what was your next step? This is very bizarre. I, at the time, felt that I needed to work in a commercial field and get a real feel for what the rough and tumble would be like. And I don't mean me making necessarily. I mean hard edge stuff. So I had I mentioned I'd worked in my aunt's shop, which was fashion. So I directly saw a job which was setting up Givenchy jewellery in London. And myself and another Italian girl got the job. So we had to set up uh, Givenchy jewellery in London in Selfridges and Harrods. Uh, it was first Selfridges. And it wasn't my intention to do this for a long period of time. It was always a short term thing just to see how the really, I'm talking hard edge of business does work. I'm very glad I did it. It taught you a lot about what people buy 
the prices they will pay for things. You know, it shocked me that a lot of people were willing to pay really high prices for non-precious materials and never question it. They would pay at the time, you know, you'd see job lots of people coming in, friends coming in or family groups coming in, and they would think nothing of paying, you know, at the time, £500, which was a lot of money for base metal. Uh, and I just used to really bulk at it. So much as I love fashion jewellery, because I think all jewellery should be worn, and affordability is important. I have an issue about fakery. So I was never fully comfortable with that, but I was really glad I did it because it, it really does teach you about the cold face. And when I finished that stint, which I knew was going to come to an end, I handed in my notice. I actually had applied for a business course, strangely enough. And that was, I think, do you know, my memory is really bad on this one. And the paperwork for it, I don't even know where it is because I've moved so many times. Mm-hmm. But I think it was a craft council initiative and there were a number of us applied to do this. And it was a boot camp on how to run a business in uh, the craft sector. Fantastic. And um, at that, I met an, an old uh, one of the lecturers that was, was at the Royal College, a guy called John Crow. And he was teaching us about, you know, how to approach writing about your business. And we had bank managers and we had all sorts. I mean, it was really good and you got money to travel outside of London and go and visit galleries and meet them. And the intention after that was that we would all set up and make our work. And I have been on the side doing things like Dazzle and intending to push down that route. So when I completed that, I was quite conscious that having worked with the Ebony's and even though I'd moved it on into inlaid Ebony at the Royal, the market wanted lots and lots and didn't see why you should pay for wood. I'm coming from the angle of, but ebony's really expensive. You're cutting down the rainforest. You should be paying big prices. It's much. At that time, that's not what anyone wanted to hear. They just mm. wanted to hear, it's wood. You should be mass producing this. You can make a killing. It's really accessory. And, you know, so I would have had some editorial shots, but I couldn't do it because I didn't agree ethically with it. So at that time, same time, just as a business course finished and I, sort of set up uh, in the early stages of doing that, that within the first year, it was trucking along quite nicely. And I came back for a visit to Northern Ireland and I met a young man and uh, we thought, oh Lord, this is, this is a great relationship. This is serious. And I decided to move home and it all fell by the wayside. But anyhow, I moved home. And just before that, I couldn't think of what, how am I going to survive? Because you mentioned Robin at the top of this, that I, I realized I couldn't move back to Northern Ireland and keep the business side Mm -hmm. of what I was doing in the contact contact side, going the way I had it now going. I decided that I would make a a last minute application to UCL to do a PGCE. So um, went for an interview there and was accepted. They had no places left, but they accepted me anyhow. Don't know, square that circle. I don't mind. It was fine. It worked out. (laughs) I had a fabulous year. Really, really hard work. But during that year, that's when I started doing projects with the VNA, really in liaison with UCL and the VNA. It was great. And actually, I loved it. I had always been a real museum buff, right the whole way through undergraduate Royal College. You know, I'd always gone into all the museums, drawn, sapped up, looked at, beavered around, looked at the clothes collections, which were amazing. And you could just, you know, go into the Museum of Mankind, which was then in Burlington House, and look at 
all sorts of ethnographic adornment or exhibitions and I was a real junkie for that type of thing yeah so when I went back towards working in the V&A it felt like a second home as well when it when the year came to an end I then was invited to come back and help with other workshops the job actually at the University of Ulster came up over that summer and to my surprise I ended up getting that but at the same time, the V&A were offering to fly me back to do more workshops. And I was thinking, I don't think I can cope with both new jobs. New... So I had to let that go, regrettably. But yeah, that ended up that I'm back here and I'm teaching, which was really the wrong way around to how I thought my career was going to go, because I literally thought I'd be doing the business end first and maybe later in my career go back to teaching. So I've totally done it the wrong way around for my plan. So I suppose what I would say to anybody is, yes, have a plan, but, you know, it mightn't turn out the way you think, because sometimes opportunities or events come up that change the direction entirely. So, yeah, that's what London life was like. So it was Royal College, running your own business, trying out somebody else's, setting up hardcore and training in business, back to teaching, back home. So it was quite intense, really. I wasn't bored, let's put it that way. I never had the chance to get bored. And so whenever you started at Ulster, what was the format of the course? I've studied the jewellery course and it changed name quite a few times, even within that short period of time. I mean, how has the course changed since you've been there? And what was it like when you arrived in? When I arrived, it was called Fine Craft Design. And it was three courses together, textile art, I think it might have then been textiles, I'm not sure they were textile art, ceramics and jewellery and silversmithing. And they used to run joint projects, you know, where you might go and research something similar, but go away and make it in your own way. And it was staffed very differently. Yeah, the year was longer, I think, as well, because it was based on the old system where you would have started at the end of September and run through with two technicians very very different it was financed very very differently and as you say Robin over that period of time it's reduced down to two associates <laughs> I'm not full-time anymore um, I started out half-time I then went to full-time and I'm back to half-time it's a hard job it's not what people think um, it's very difficult to um, manage the keeping abreast of things and giving what you want to give and then keep your own self outside going so mm, it's a juggle for sure and yeah it's a very different platform different environment students well school kids nowadays I don't know that they get much experience in handling materials anymore because there's so much pressure on doing the core subjects uh, which they describe as English, maths and science. And you would think nothing else existed in the economy. So that's what they steer things towards. And we all know art takes time. If you want to do it at a high level, it takes a lot of work and effort. It's not about inspiration and you're talented. It's about hard graft. The talent and the inspiration from on high are really a myth. And I don't think it's fair to tell kids that's how it is. That's not the reality of the business of art and design at all, not in any level. And if you want to do that, do it for enjoyment, absolutely. And I guess that's what I did with music. It's hard graft in that too. Uh, with music, nobody expects you to be a good musician without hard graft and effort. 
and I'm really not sure why in art and design it's any different. It's, it's a very hard picture to describe now, but it's a very different playing field. And I feel now is a good time to reframe it because COVID has really highlighted there is a really deep personal relationship that we all have with making. Mm. Um, but if kids aren't allowed to tap into that, what are they going to do? They'll get soulless. They'll have no empathy, understanding, and they'll not be resourceful. And I think that's a terrible shame that we could allow younger generations not to know how resourceful they can be. It's not really directly directly answering your question, Robin, because it's so complicated, but maybe that's a snapshot of it's not what it was. I know we're working on a project at the minute to go into schools, and we'll talk a bit more about that in, later on in the episode. But the attitudes towards students, have you seen that change over the years? Like either the confidence or how people work? I feel like more recently people are, are trying to get things a lot faster. And as you say, it's it's hard graph. But students, whenever you started teaching, did have you seen a difference in their attitudes and how they approach work or how they learn? I think as with everywhere, all of us in the education sector realize that a student's ability to focus has changed because of how they've interfaced with technology over their lifespan. So that's probably a major thing. You know, back in your day or even before your day, Robin, when I was still there, people were really, maybe they didn't understand how important learning how to focus on something and just be still and quiet and figure your own way through processes. They didn't understand or they they had a better kind of mindset towards being open to learning that. Whereas now everybody, everybody always thought you should know everything by the end of three years, which you can't. You can't even know it in your lifetime, let alone three years. So, you know, there is always that eagerness to know everything. But the speed at which kids have been taught they need to know everything now might be slightly problematic for them when they come to something that's not that quick. It does take time it takes repeat it takes independent learning and a lot of failure and risk but that's actually where the magic lies because if you don't fail it mightn't actually be a failure it might actually be some brilliant little thing that you've just discovered that nobody else had noticed that is your usb so they don't really have the encouragement to take those levels of risks through learning for themselves and grafting at something in the same way and hands-on, you know, a lot of people don't know how to use their hands in the same way because they have no time in their curriculum at school to do that. And I understand why, you know, principals are under pressure, art teachers are under pressure, the science and math subjects are their priority, and anything, including music and the arts, that takes that bites into that is, you know, they're lucky. Some schools have reported they're lucky to even get you know, a couple of hours in a week. And I know I was in a school in the last couple of years where I was giving a, a just a one-off session and it was a, a, the teacher had set up a lovely day. And within that day, somebody burst into the art room and went, so-and-so, you've got to come out to do a chemistry mock. It's like the teacher was so mortified and you just, you can see where everybody is being put in positions of pressure all over the place. And it's no one's, it's no one person's fault. It's It's just a, a system that maybe is 
due for revision I don't know yeah it's almost as though craft has no value to it and that it's seen as a luxurious thing to do or a selfish thing to do because it's taking time away from those critical subjects that are considered more valuable which that's really upsetting to see that in such young minds today that there's no focus on that yeah that's interesting that you bring that up and I think you know I always remember listening to Radio 4 because I do all the time and I think it's Artists in Conversation and it was Howard Goodall and I can't remember who I should have gone and checked it before I spoke to you but the two artists were having a conversation and I think Howard came out with and it's a luxury to be able to compose and you know we all do that and it's a luxury to be able to make your ceramic pieces or your jewellery Robin you know Um, and the other the lady that he was speaking with said sorry I'm going to stop you there Howard Um, who tells a mathematician it's a luxury to be able to come up with and and who tells a, a lawyer that it's a luxury to be able to practice in law and a doctor it's a it's not it's just where your strengths are and that's something we've totally forgotten about and I was so glad she had challenged it because it's something that I feel strongly about but none of us articulated in the right forum or maybe we're never given the right forum and and also you know we're going to have to rethink how we work in our own environment now because outsourcing offshoring it's got to come to an end in this era of sustainability and air miles and you know we can't all live in the global world the way we were living it doesn't mean we can't live in it but certainly this mass consumption just for the sake of it we I don't think it's there anymore I think we've all moved on during this pandemic to be more socially aware and more ethically conscious and that doesn't mean chucking everything out it means reassessing how we use things because we are the problem not the materials and I'm kind of very very strongly driven to say that that's my stance the materials don't do anything it's how we use them or misuse them that actually is at the root of all of our problems so there's nothing wrong with everything in moderation no but there was a beautiful conversation the craft and I done the Glenn Adamson talk with Marie-Louise Muir and he mentioned in it, it was just towards the end, it was really lovely and it just caught my attention about how you know your local butcher or you know your local greengrocer, but you no longer know your local potter, you know, who would have made your plates and your bowls and your cups. And we've lost that connection socially and this whole COVID situation has made us question where we are sourcing our things. Now we are looking locally to where we can get those, which I thought that was quite nice, how we're looking at craft. But what would you say is the most difficult aspect of teaching? Would you say it's the transference of skills or is it having the student being in the right mindset that is how you would get great work out of a student? That's um, never a one-way street, is it? Uh, It's a conversation, isn't it? And conversations only work when it's an open door on both sides. And so we've been incredibly lucky, I think, or I have with the students that we've had through in the main. They're really very talented. They're very open and they've done great things. So um, I can't say that I have been unfortunate in terms of those that I've come into contact with on, on a very rare occasion, there might be personality clashes, but in the main, once people are allowed to learn for 
the right reasons and work to their strengths, they generally start really flourishing. And that might take the three years. I think what I notice increasingly, and particularly over latter years, is that we get a lot of students who have come from education where they maybe have issues and commonly anybody in the, working in the third dimension might find that dyslexia is a common recurring theme. And I guess a long time ago, I came to the conclusion that actually it's a different way of thinking about the world and working in the world and it's spatial. I probably am on the, well, I know I'm on that spectrum. Um, my daughter is, and if you are from that background, it's really hard to explain that to anybody else that isn't. And yet I see students coming through who are under confident, don't know how to tap into themselves because that might have been their problem all along. So they think of themselves as stupid or incapable or unable to do things for themselves until they're given permission because they're so frightened to move forwards. And so it's not just about the skills, the practical skills, it's about the whole person. And no one's ever going to do anything useful or good until the whole person's on board and can understand how to work for themselves. And it's about trying to ensure that the journey results in a person who feels capable when they leave and that that's only the start, but they're capable of taking what they have and transferring that and moving it forward as they move into life as a maker. Hopefully. And what about making trends then that you've noticed from your time starting to now through this very challenging time? I think there's a lot more freedom in being able to be yourself now than there ever would have been historically. I mean, I do think when I started out, it was by necessity quite, and I don't want to be sexist about it, but it was quite a male-dominated language that we used. I don't mean necessarily everybody in the game was male, but the language was quite male. So it would have been machine oriented or skill as in doing what you're told to do, quite traditional being paramount. And there were people willing to encourage you to break out of that, which was always the case, but still the perceived or the received vocabulary would have been that way inclined from the audience. And I think there's a lot of work to do there still. I think the younger generation genuinely don't place emphasis on that any longer. They want authenticity. And I think that as I've gone through the course, I do see a more authentic voice really emerging and growing and out there and doing stuff, you know, whether it's from Eddie and Stuart's day to Robin's to now that actually anybody that does come on to the course, by the time they leave, they've got this maturity in being able to stand up and say as a maker this is what I believe in and this is what I'm going to make and it may change but I really am happy to give this out into the world and engage with it and I think that's really nice everything goes through trends but I think I don't know I think I think now there's a freedom to be all of the things whether you want to be traditional or whether you want to be more artistic you know because what does any of it mean anymore it's open to everybody it's a bit like painting, you know, you can still be a portrait painter or an abstract painter. And I guess in the world of jewellery, I probably think that you can be all of those things. Do what suits your way of making and your personality. And if you use your strengths, then that's always coming from a position of power. Mm -hmm. um, but always be open to change as well, because you'll get bored if you don't. <laughs> 
can I ask you a bit about your personal life? I know you married a geologist and then had your wonderful daughter Meg. How did you meet? Because obviously geology is, can be quite closely related to jewellery. And then how did you find working and that family balance as you went along? Oh, there's lots in there, isn't there? Um, yes, I married the wonderful Garth. He is a geologist. We met by accident after watching JFK one evening and the Ormo Road when there was a cinema there. And I was with a good friend of mine and uh, we went back to the Queen's Senior Common Room and that's where Garth and I met uh, over a friendship group that we shared. But he worked in Scotland at the time and I had just moved home. And he was about to just move back to Belfast. And funnily enough, we bonded over Amber and it's still a recurring theme. So yeah, we are, we look on the face of it like we should be poles apart, but it's been fascinating. And I'm sure we drive each other mad on two occasions because an artist living with a scientist is a really interesting mix, but it's a really brilliant mix because I always loved that side of things. I wouldn't say I was any good at it, but materials and their properties I'm so into where they come from I've I've learned a lot about materials where they come from and I've always tried to make work that respects that so even when I would have made rings that maybe are trying to say something putting some silver some gold and some quartz together they live together anyhow they come from the earth together and so in my discussions I don't see why they you know it's lovely to see them come back together through how a human has maybe fashioned them, but in a way that they don't naturally grow. And there are people now making work that has a similar vein. Equally, I have a very different relationship now with, I think I always did though, um, where things come from, it has always been important to me, but it's now really much more grounded. So everything comes at a cost. I don't find the current myths about where things come from easy to take because I know the reality. Every material in the house comes at a cost to our environment and it's what kind of trade-off or respect do you want to bring to that? So for me that's very important and Garth's background is in gold particularly. Ironically I don't get any of it so it's okay <laughs> but uh, you know yes that's where he found the gold mine over in Oma and worked on various mines around the world. And so for me, he loves it from a very different perspective. He's had to understand where it comes from, veins, where they grow, and they have a massive, big, supportive community. And I love having conversations with them about minerals and about materials and what comes from where. And I've been involved in discussions with people that own gold mines and know where they are. And sometimes I find that frustrating because I've always come from the perspective that if they could have used local makers and set up a sustainable project here, that that would have been so much better received. Um, maybe it will happen. Maybe. Maybe in my lifetime. It won't happen in my time during teaching for sure. But, um, you know, I would love to think that down the line that those mines that are currently in development might go that route because that would be such a lovely community synergy. And there are some brilliant makers here, so why not work together? Why not bring it back? It would give the product some absolute uniqueness. So sometimes living with a scientist is interesting when you try to write texts because how we speak as artists is so different. 
you know, I'm not being on that dyslexic side. It takes me quite a long time to edit back to the core of what I'm trying to think because you can sometimes have so much in your head. Uh, what I realize now is that I've always had an issue with summarizing. I have become quite good at it now, but it's taken me 50 plus years to get there. So there is hope for all of you that are dyslexic out there. Uh, it just takes a lot of putting yourself out of your comfort zone and learning to work both sides of your brain. I can remember bringing a text. I thought, okay, right, I'll bring it to Garth and Garth would read and he'd go, that's not factual. So I'd rewrite it according to the word of Garth, which is great. And then I bring it back to somebody like Joe McBrin, who's such a dear friend. And Joseph would look at it and go, and where are you in this? <laughs> and you're kind of like sitting there learning a really important lesson that it's so important that you listen to people, but you navigate your own route through it and that you do use them as buffers, but you still have to stand back and take a stance and stand up for what you want to say, however crudely that is. And I guess that goes for whatever you're making and designing in your own work or creating, that you still have to learn to take account of everybody's opinion it doesn't make them right. You have to figure out why it's right and wrong for yourself and what that means and why and be able to stand by those opinions. And and it's no different in the written word to the making. That's a big thing he's taught me. The wonderful Meg. I mean, what a pleasure it is to have a daughter in some regards as well as painful, but that's called growing up. You know, she's on the whole a really brilliant kid. Uh, she's now a young lady. Uh, she's doing really well. Uh, she didn't. She's not a maker. You know what? She never was. <laughs> she never was. And you, but she was always a drafts person. And even at the age of two or three, she used to plonk her backside on the ground and draw her cats Aww. face to face in front of them with her little sketchbook and pen. Not prompted. She just. She's a, she loves drawing and that's coming through in the animation work that she's doing very well at. So, you know, she's got to plow her own furrow. But I guess maybe the thing that she's got from us is that you have to have something to say and you have to be honest to how you say it. And so she's moving forward with her animation in that way. So she's just won the British Animation Award in just before lockdown, the week before lockdown. <laughs> And uh, come home from that and she won, I kind of don't ask me, Manchester Film Festival and they flew her over on the day to win her award. So she's doing quite well on her own, but she plied her own furrow yeah. and um, really didn't do art at school because she was in music and she was in CBYO and touring with them the odd time and going to all the Saturday mornings and the lessons and the music theory. And having tried to do the same at school myself, I always advised her, don't juggle the two. It's too much, too greedy. You won't manage it. And it's no disrespect. No one can. So, yeah, we just tried to put a portfolio together over a couple of weekends. And her career started that way in art and design. But it was always there. She always had some kind of basics, the role. And she's gone away and honed it on her own. I think that's quite healthy. There's a lovely similarity uh, between you saying that you're going over to London with your dad for going to the musicals. And I've been to London with you with Meg as well whenever she was younger. So that's just quite lovely to hear. But also, how did you, we've talked to a few mum, like new mums who are sort of navigating the waters of being 
creative makers with small babies and toddlers. How did you find your own self trying to be creative and finding your identity within motherhood and within being a maker and teaching at the same time? How did you find balancing all of those at once? You never get it right, probably, but you never get it wrong either. You just do what you have to do. I think it's a survival course. I think it's going to be for anybody who's just at that point. It's the toughest survival course anyone is ever going to do. Sorry, Bear Grylls, I don't watch you. Maybe you do do amazing things, but it's hardcore. You're going to probably be very, very tough on yourself. I think I'm probably that kind of person anyhow. Do you know how you juggle? I, do you know, on reflection, I really don't even know how I survived it. I just don't know, but you do somehow. Uh, you have to pay a price, no doubt. Um, I can't say I had the luxury of time to be very creative, but whatever time I could manage, I tried because I just need I just need to be a maker. I, I can't explain it in any other way apart from I can't not be a maker. I'm really not happy if I haven't dabbled in doing something. Yeah, it is the hardest survival course. That might be the best way to describe it. And all you can do is make the right decision at a point in time for you and your family and your child, because primarily your responsibility is to bring this person up uh, and get them to a point where they're able to be confident and out there on their own. And we're all going to fail at bits of it. But if come the end, well, it's not the end, thankfully, but if come launch pad, they still speak to you and they still want to speak to you. And Julia <laughs> Joyce, we've done some jobs together over lockdown. We've made some no little videos um, and we really enjoyed it. And to me, that's a success. So I don't know what the future will hold, but um, any new mother starting out, that's all I can say to you. Just if you lose yourself for a while, don't lose heart. It will come back if it's meant yeah. to. Try not to be overly hard on yourself. Would your family be jewellery wearers? Would they have a very different taste in jewellery to what you would have? Yeah, apart from my mum. My mum was actually, I, I gave her some things and then she decided the last piece she wanted to buy it because she wanted to make a formal change from being the mom that gets to buying it. And actually, it's funny, it's one of those pieces that um, it's got amber in it and ebony. <laughs> And all of those things that, and yet it's in a more palatable, wearable form for easy everyday wear. But it's just that little bit different and pearls and silks. It's still very much my work. Uh, and I'd laser cut a little AB on it just as a tester on, on the little amber piece I'd made. So those are her initials because she's called Angela. And it's just so lovely that she now has that. And, and she enjoys it because... It just makes her feel, you know, she wears it on days when she wants to and, and it, it does something for her. Um, so uh, I can't say I come from a family of people who want to wear my work necessarily, apart from the fact that my youngest sister would love to have bought a piece, but I won't sell it to her because I don't like it and I don't think it's good enough. She keeps going, <laughs> I wear that there, but and I'm like, I don't want that out there in the world. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> my hair. <laughs> but... Yeah, I think they've, they've bought artworks or, or drawings or, or little dabbles because I took up painting again after an operation about five years ago and started dabbling with flat work again because I couldn't make and I was stuck in the house and it was not, an, you know, I don't think when you're a, a maker or a person that creates things that 
not doing. It's not an option. Uh, you just have to. And I tried knitting and um, injured myself, my neck, looking down too much. So I had to give that up. So painting was more, I'm not a painter, but you know, it was like sketching and background work and drawing. And I took that up again because as a kid, I would have been very avid. I, I, a day never went by without me filling pages. And now I find I make more than I draw because it comes quicker through the process. And that relationship with materials is so much easier than it would have been when I was younger. So then it was drawing, now it's making. And photography is coming into things. I'm not a good photographer, but recording things and seeing things through a lens Mm -hmm. has become as much my drawing tool. So I quite like adding to the pots. Eventually (laughs) I'll probably have a go and dabble. I think it's about time. Getting the time to be able to do these things is the harder part, isn't it? We talk a wee bit about the work that you're making at the minute. Over the last year, I've been doing things with ACJ and uh, its equivalent in Italy. And that's a touring exhibition, which is a bit stuck somewhere at the moment. It's meant to be in Padua, I think, at the moment. But I think it might be stuck in Glasgow due to COVID. But it's about listening, really, earpieces that are props that provoke conversations about what we listen to and how we process things. I think there are a lot of layers in it uh, and there's a lot to do on it. So it's a start about the creative process, what we maybe listen to and how it comes out the other side uh, because the creative head's hidden. We can't see it. That's one conversation. And I'm mixing work and materials and processes that happen in the home. Uh, And I mentioned uh, just now about the operation, which meant being housebound. At that point, I had been just about starting processes that were focusing more on bizarrely things that were to do with domesticity to do with women's work and so I was setting myself the limitation of I could use things if they came from my bathroom or I could use them if they came from my kitchen because these are the two places you know you spend a lot of time either cleaning yourself or cleaning your home or cooking that began a series of pieces of work steaming wood over the cooker using jasmineites using plastics but they had to be molded into lids or tops or containers that came from I don't know cleaning equipment anything that looked like I knew it might work or that I had a material understanding in terms of it would release itself or take a cast off and I guess that goes back to my workbench is in my kitchen out of necessity And I share my laundry room with the rolling mill and (laughs) hammers and vices and they have to come and go. And it's frustrating at times. But rather than that being a negative, I decided, right, let's just see, you know, what you can do with what you have. Because I mentioned resourcefulness as being important to me. I've learned a lot about materials through research and also listening to Radio 4 and science programs and reading up about materials. And in going back over Amber, my other original material and meeting my now husband, little bits of information come out about, you know, the properties it has and its original name being Electron, which is Greek for Amber. And the fact that it's actually an organic plastic, essentially, if you bear it right. I mean, there's a lot of other complicated things, but when you reduce it back down, it's an organic plastic. And so I began to say, well, why are you so prejudiced then again about using plastics when it's not the plastics fault that people chuck it out so could you make it collectible and I've kind of moved over the five years into 
working with 3D printing and sintering plastics on the one hand and also hand making, but keeping it back to basic domestic tools that I only allow myself to use in the main. So weighing scales, I've mentioned the lids, I've mentioned pods. I know Robin, you've done some of the workshops with me at the museum, which we did as part of Leonardo's workshops. And when you look at somebody like Da Vinci in that workshop and the scope it allowed us to start addressing, you realise that it's curiosity. It's his curiosity that was the most fascinating thing about him. It's the fact that he followed it through into trying to solve problems and use materials to solve problems that I find interesting. And so my problem was I haven't got a big workshop. I've got limitations. I don't have a massive amount of equipment. So what can I use in order to make work that has something contemporary and now to say? So it's evolved into using plastic to discuss what what is women's work? Why do we have to have a workshop? And is our workshop, our domestic workshop, good enough? And some of these things are lids off polishes not used but refashioned or edited and uh, making a daisy chain for the cleaner or the ear pieces are made out of things like um, pot scrubbers that I'll use in a way to take a cast off it and make a holy surface that allows it to look like a filter or funnels that I'll cast from. So they're basic baking equipment, moisturizers because they're to do with beautification so they come from that luxury of a different sort, you know that domestic luxury. Do you have within that, uh, because you use quite sort of everyday materials, and I was saying to Gemma before we recorded this, you made a beautiful like terrazzo, I'm not entirely sure if that's how you pronounce it, but with a coffee grinder and old plastics, and it looked beautiful how it came together. Do you have a favourite tool, whether that's a traditional tool that would be normally found within a jeweller's workshop, or whether that is a more domestic Tool. Do you know what my bizarrely? Yes, I know what you said. I've forgotten about that. Uh, yeah, that's part of what I've been doing, and part of the agenda is you know it's a bit like it, it, the coffee grinder is okay because it came from the kitchen, but actually it does the same as probably a stone crusher. <laughs> it's just on a radically different scale and it's a radically different cost. Yeah. So in a sense, when we bring it into the domestic, there's a female subtext, isn't there? You bring it into a builder's environment and all of a sudden it aspires to being more important and more credible and more expensive and and I find that interesting I don't think one's right or one's wrong I just think it's a little bit I find it quite tongue-in-cheek to work with do I have a favorite tool do you know the most fun tool I bought was last summer (laughs) you're gonna laugh draw tongs that work which is for pulling wire through my draw plate and and they're so straightforward and I love Walsh's over in Hatton Garden you know and you go in and one week they'll have something and another they'll have nothing you're interested in but these Mm -hmm. draw tongs aren't very big but boy do they grip the metal and pull it through so easily for you that it's just oh I love it so that does sound pretty dreamy (laughs) (laughs) it could be my coffee grinder it could be a balloon it could be a rolling pin I really do you know what I think I find interesting is something that works (laughs) does that make sense if it works I like it yeah and I'm not again I'm not very prejudiced have you ever really made a product line like I know you were saying about 
going into business and I would know you more for exhibitions maybe in our space where you would sell these incredible rings and obviously whenever you're making rings generally I would make to order so it would be you would make it for a certain size I quite like the idea that these were so creative and unusual it was like they were made they were destined for one particular person do you tend to work for to commission or is product something that you do you think in commission or do you think in product whenever you, it comes to selling your work? I think there are two sides to my work and the rings you're talking about, they do have that product edge to them and having worked because they they are yeah, turning plastic on its head and sticking diamonds in it or black Haitian pearls or, you know, so semi-precious as well as it precious together that's done very consciously because as I've said earlier that my agenda in that is can I find a soul in plastic can I find a, a soul in polyurethane that makes it not throwawayable that makes it covetable to me it is both product and individual all in one but most of the kind of rings that I have made to date are commission work because they're dealing more with somebody else's history, sentiment, or upcycling, re repurposing, or a straight commission. But it's a different language. You, you really, when you're working on something like that, you have to know the person well enough or be able to, it's almost like you have a, it's like we're doing now. You have to have that podcast equivalent conversation with them to understand their needs, just as much as they need to have a conversation with you to understand where you're coming from so that on occasion people might come with you know watches of pages of what they think they like and then they see what you do and they see what you come up with and they go oh god I don't want what I asked for originally I want that so we're maybe in the business of making things that people don't even know they want at the moment there are two sides to hire work there's the exhibition side as well because I'm quite interested in making that level of work more democratic. I don't know if I can ever achieve that, but I think those rings I'm mentioning are an attempt at that as well. So that things that look unaffordable become affordable, but still well paid for, fairly paid for. I'm in a state of transition. Partially I held back because working in the university as well as doing the outside projects at the moment are quite greedy and to have a production line I got I have to be able to fulfill all of those commissions rapidly and the one-off commissions I can do whereas the rapid ones my life's not at a point now where I can respond in that way so it's kind of like if I make a bulk lot then that's what there is I can maybe size them but yeah and so that's currently what works best but down the line maybe that is exactly the route it will take because um yeah there is a market for it I'm constantly getting really good feedback but I'm also aware that the conversation in the market at this point in time is very set against plastics and so repositioning or not repositioning my argument's fairly clear and when I first made the pieces in what 2016-17 four-hour space I very much describe them as conscious consumption. So I'm conscious of why I'm making them. I'm conscious of why I'm asking somebody to consume plastic. But at the moment, it seems to be very much at odds with the Twitter sphere, is it? And sometimes I think that mass groupthink thing is not very helpful. I think what we do demands that people are confident to be an individual um, and stand up for things in their own right. And 
I do sometimes get a little concerned that groupthink or homogenized thinking is in danger of taking over independent thought. So I know that's not exactly a straight answer. quite like to know if you've ever had a commission that it started in one place, turned out to be something completely different, and it was incredible the journey that you went along with it. Or do you have like a dream commission you wish somebody would come and ask you for it and it would be, you know, enjoyable to make? I have a really fun commission that uh, took forever for me to get any inspiration over. And luckily the client had already had work for me, so they didn't mind waiting. And they came with... Look, we we were all honest. This honking great big tourmaline that was so vile. <laughs> Eventually, after you know a bit of you know, sometimes you have to put things away. Jobs like that that are so unique, you can't. If it's not happening and you try to force it, it will always look half baked. If you just keep plugging, but know when it's not right and leave it a bit longer, and eventually. If you if you work it through to a point where you can start meeting it on its own terms, that's when magic starts to happen. And I despaired of ever thinking of anything. And the client was not really expecting, you know, much. I don't know what they were expecting. But by the time I'd been over to Holtz and had what I wanted done with the stone, scoped it, worked it through, and then brought it to the client. It was so lovely because... I kind of felt it looked okay, you know, it looked like as best it was going to look. And I mean, it was huge and it was honking and there wasn't much in the beginning I would have looked at and gone, oh, this is going to look great in the end. I would have gone, oh, no. (laughs) But once I handed it over and, you know, get the invoice, actually, it was really, really lovely because he turned to me and he went, I'm sorry, I'm not going to pay you that. And I thought, oh, my God, you know what you do. And he went away and he came back again and he put this, wadge in my hand which was way over the asking price because he was just so tearful and dumbstruck that actually he got something that he wasn't even remotely expecting but was so his girlfriend or partner that he had commissioned this for didn't want to die she was like me what the hell you know he picked it up on tour in Africa and I hate that thing you're asking her to make a piece and in the end, actually, he brought it home and she saw it and it was just like, I'm having it back. It's mine. Yeah. And so her comment to me has been that she wears it when she wants to feel powerful. Oh. And she's a fundraiser. So for quite a significant place, she's got quite a high power job. You know, isn't that lovely that she actually a wanted it because <laughs> we both thought it was horrible <laughs> and, and that he was so delighted. And she is now that's mine. I'm having it go away there's a bit of a fight over it. So, um, you know, that, that kind of thing where it's it wasn't a massive commission, but it was a big commission. Uh, and it, it just was a torture because it was so ugly. But I guess that's our job to try and find the beauty in something. And it's not always where we think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And sometimes a really hard push to get there, you know, but hey-ho, it worked on that occasion. It's worked on many occasions and there have been some beautiful stories along the way, but yeah, maybe that's the most recent one. Incredible. Well, (laughs) there are probably loads of people with stories like that, but yeah. Well, I mean, that's definitely the dream result though, I think. Yeah. Moving on to projects that you're currently doing. I know yourself, myself, Celine Trainer, Egla and Stuart are all involved in the ACJSNI 
Could you tell us a bit about that, how it came about and your plans for the future? The pinned exhibition has come about really, it was intended to be part of a complex collaborative project, which myself, Goldsmiths uh, Training Centre and Ulster University, NMNI and Craft and I have all been discussing for really the guts of two and a half to three years. Uh, different people have been coming on board but it started out with myself and Goldsmiths and it snowballed. The exhibition was to be an illustration of other events that we would have already held at this stage of the game uh, and it's looking at the brooch and how fascinating that idea of wearing a brooch can be and what more it can be rather than just a you know an historical item that it could be contemporary it could be provocative it could be worn anywhere really made out of anything and so we have as a group been in discussion as you will know and wanting to bring independent makers together as a group because we always felt that as a group you are stronger and as individuals it's quite nice to be able to help encourage each other and push each other outside of your comfort zone so that you don't become mundane and we all know what it's like making production work it can be really great fun at times but also it can sap your lifeblood some days and so you need to do little projects every now and again to remind yourself of who you are and why you're doing what you're doing. Pinned is really our attempt at trying to get us all together for our first exhibition and it's a result of Zoom calls and much negotiating and put our unique voice out there which goes beyond normal production work that says something about what jewellery can be what it might be and be a little provocative rather than you know just humdrum and create a little bit of life in and around what the subject of jewellery and silver can be. So we're really quite excited by it all. Yeah it's a miracle we're still talking positively about it because it's almost like everything's it's like going through the Grand National hurdles isn't it you know and every time you think you've jumped a fence high enough there's another one and here it comes and you know it's just feels like Beaches Brook still never going to you know be attempted yet. But we've had a lot of support from the community, from those funders, goodwill wanting us to succeed. Just the circumstances at the moment are very trying, very difficult. We're hoping that will come good. And we're also hoping we might be able to get funding to make this the best we can make it because we'd like to be able to produce a video. We'd like to be able to have some outreach and to start engaging with a discussion that might go into schools and engage some three pilot schools possibly in making work at that level and getting kids a hands-on experience again. And we would come in and support both the teachers and the students in doing that and making their own pins. So maybe, fingers crossed, in 21, this actually can happen. And this will be a marker just to put it out there and to gain some traction and interest. So that's our hope. And we are doing it very much as a supportive team. We can't do it without each other. And that's been lovely. You know, it's been a pleasure to work with you all. And you'd all say the same, you know, we're just like a bunch of bumbling, not quite idiots, because we do know what we're doing, but we've not maybe not all done it together before. And we're just supporting each other through this process. And, you know, hats off to you lot for supporting me and vice versa, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful open discussion. There's no hierarchy. We're in it together.
And so whenever, because it very much originated from you, whenever I think you first came to me about it, we were talking about education and skills. And obviously that's been put on the back bench now with COVID and being able to get into skills and things like that. Do you think there is, with the rise in popularity of things like graphic design and illustration and more sort of computer-based creativity, do you think there there's a possibility that there may not be jewellers in the future and that's what the group is trying to combat and teaching those hand skills to bring kids into the creative and craft industry? There's always that big scare, isn't there? But actually, the Craft Report has just come out, the Craft Council uh, England joined together with Craft Council NI, Craft Council Scotland and Wales. And they have been, they undertook a huge market report, which is just published in June. And from that, it's very, very clear that, no, that, that, that actually isn't the case. But that is the story we tell ourselves, that it's going to disappear. But the facts on the ground are very different. And particularly jewellery, glass, uh, glass a little bit behind and metalwork a little bit behind, but jewellery in particular, since lockdown, sales have rocketed. And um, it's a very, very healthy part of the sector. It's very, very surprising that the evidence is now contradicting the stories that we've been telling ourselves for the last few years. I'm quite heartened to hear that. And I know what you're saying. Yes, it was to reinvigorate and try and circumvent the gap that exists because it is there and there's no point in pretending it isn't there. But I do think those people still exist, those children, those adults. I mean, look, there are many adults who are in careers that they hate, that want to retrain, and they're coming back to study at university, particularly hand skills whether it's ceramics, whether it's jewellery, whether it's silversmithing. And that has been a trend over the last maybe five years. That's going to grow because we all know there are going to be jobs that are no longer jobs. They, they're furloughed at the moment, but they may never come back. And people are going to be looking to retraining. And I suspect that if it were me, I would not want to be retraining in something that I was dependent on another person for my income. I'd want to be doing it for myself. I just don't think we've been focusing on those kinds of innovations and those kinds of people that are in prime position to be those innovators. We've been looking to technology as our savior. And it is, I use technology, sure, I'm using 3D printing. And I, I there's a part of it I love and there's a part of it I hate. It's just a tool, like any other tool. And there are jobs it's perfect for and there are jobs it isn't. And I don't think it is the only way forward. I think it's a part of a way forward. So I I have hope, which maybe this time last year, I might have felt very utopian in saying, but I think now this year I feel I have facts and grounding to be able to say that. Yeah, and I, I suspect the evidence will continue to grow as we move forward over these next few months. And we do need to make, we do need to engage with the physical world and we do need things around us that are about honesty. We don't want to all look the same and be homogenous versions of what somebody else tells us to be. Maybe I'm still, I'm still utopian. Look, you can't be in the world of creativity and art and not be utopian. That's mad to assume. But I do think there's now foundation, there's more evidence to suggest the hunch is, is right. And so I wouldn't ask this unless, obviously, Anne, uh, we've talked about this previously, yeah. but because being a maker is so, it is who you are as 
a maker, you know, there's no real division. It's not like you can switch off once you leave the workshop or the studio or the kitchen bench or wherever a maker decides to make. It's something that you're constantly thinking about up to the late hours of the night and dreaming about and everything. Do you think makers can ever retire Um, and do you think like you were saying you had uh, surgery a few years ago which meant that you had to edit how you were able to to make and to practice my mum would have arthritis and she would be big into sewing and that's something she's having to try and work around and do different you know hand exercises and things to be able to continue in a way because it it's part of who she is but do you think makers can retire or do you think you just continue to work and and there's no real end it's just continuous. It's just a bad disease, isn't it, really? <laughs> you, can't, you can't not be who you are. You might move into other phases, I think, might be the better way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I think I mentioned earlier on about resourcefulness. I think we are resourceful. And I think maybe one of the things when you begin in the world of art and design or craft or making you always imagine, oh, well, that's the end of books, you know, when you're a school kid and all of these kids that are finishing their A-levels at the moment will probably think, oh, God, great, I never have to read a book again. I can just go and do art. In actual fact, as you go through your career, you realise that it's never just about one thing. So I guess when physically you meet a challenge, mentally you start reading more books and then you go back to making and it's like a ping pong game where your brain is active. How you get those thoughts out changes according to your restrictions. So whether that's your hand or your neck or your leg falling off or your eyesight fading. I mean, if your eyesight fades in the jewelry world, you just get bigger magnifying lenses and you just look even more like something out of Silence of the Lambs. But but, uh, yeah, I, I think in general... I, I think I'll always be fiddling around and maybe maybe if it isn't jewellery, I'll be making cakes. I, I think the funniest one was making the, the meringue ring, <laughs> the moringa. Um, for I love that. As part of the, <laughs> because I've never made meringues like that before in my life before, but it was hilarious. You know, how can you make a ring in an hour <laughs> out of meringue? Maybe I'll take up meringue rings. I'm, I'm being facetious, but I do think that we just, if you're a creative, you don't yeah. ever stop. You just find other ways around it. Yeah. I don't know if I'll ever be lucky enough to be able to use my hands well enough. I don't know. Maybe you just adapt your materials. Being creative sometimes can sustain you and it's almost like a form of mental food, you know, just being able to work and play and be able to to find that and I think there's an awful lot of energy well it obviously takes energy to physically do well any element of craft can be very physical that it it gives you so much nourishment as well that I think it's important to continue but Jim and I were talking about it ourselves you know mm-hmm. I see even though I only started doing jewellery about 10 years ago I see things have changed and I know there's other makers who will have back problems because mm-hmm. of just certain things that have happened on or if people have had accidents and you're constantly as you say changing and trying to adapt but I I don't really see that there is an end point and Gemma and I were talking about our partners who work in a completely different field I find it very bizarre that they can just start their day and end their day and then go and do something completely different whereas I am constantly working non-stop I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing not to 
potentially have a retirement I'm not sure I think you just do it until you can't and then you just find another solution you just find another way of making or you just find another outlet of how you can express yourself or another method of how to get that satisfaction of producing something I think we've been asking quite a few people about how COVID has maybe affected them and I know a lot of projects have been up in the air and obviously because you lecture as well that's something that has been affected I also know that we were having a conversation about how do you think if COVID will be in our lives for the foreseeable future how do you think you can teach a practical subject long distance and also what are the other effects that you've had knock-on effects from COVID interrupting normal life? I haven't had time you know sometimes it affects me in terms of when I hear other people going oh I've got my house organized and I've cleaned it top to bottom and I've done this I've been working I'm so annoyed at them <laughs> because somehow I seem to be finding myself busier than ever. I, I wouldn't. Part of me is going, I wouldn't mind a break. And the other part of me is going, well, do you know, I have so much to do. <laughs> but COVID has taken some opportunities. Like, for example, I mentioned that I'm supposed to have had work in Munich. That couldn't go. I'm supposed to have work touring Italy. Obviously, that stuck somewhere or other. I'm asked to do an exhibition next somewhere in Italy again. I don't know if that'll ever come off because of COVID. And our projects, more importantly, um, have had to hang in the balance. But there are ways around everything. It's a little bit like saying makers find other ways to adapt. And I think we do. I think we are problem solvers. Um, and at the moment, we're all trying to figure out, well, OK, how can we work with other people in order to make videos, for example, that might be able to go out. And it's not the same experience as being there person to person, but it does go some way to helping out. And, you know, the other day I gave a, a, a WhatsApp tutorial to somebody, which is, you know, we made it work because literally, you know, it's like, have you got this in your garden? Maybe if you go and you look at that and you draw the other and what will turn the phone around and so actually we can use technology to try and help us through this, but maybe we all have got to be very careful about how we pace it and the expectations. I sometimes am conscious that I'm hearing little expectations come back in that are from the old world that aren't COVID friendly. <laughs> and that's a little concerning because we can't operate necessarily the way we were operating, but we can we can try. You know, I've been one-to-one -one with people with a big screen. Obviously, if you're dealing with heat, you can't have a plastic visor on. You can't have a mask on necessarily because if the flame went up your face, that's really dangerous. So can you put a GoPro on your forehead and video that to the same extent? So that's a possibility. It's nurturing. I think for me, the thing I'm going to find weird is it's all well and good me doing stuff and demonstrating, but watching how other people take on what you've just given them and how they, at the earliest stages, it's a bit like watching Bambi on screen in Disney, you know, a bit wobbly. And when you're watching back, you can see things that they're doing that maybe if one little tweak might help them improve it massively. And that's where I'm going to miss the guidance, you know, is holding something the right way. And you can't see that in a video in the same way that you can in real life because you can, your your head calibrates so much stuff through how you see in real time, pressure, physicality, angle. And these are all details that sound ridiculous in other fields, but to a jeweler, they're part and parcel of your daily 
bread and butter. And at the beginning, those are really hard to get the handle of. But then I always say to students, you've got to be really careful of over expecting. Bring yourself back to being a child in primary one or preschool and thinking about, you know, here's your pencil. How did you learn to hold a pencil? Well, that probably took you the guts of a year to learn how to make the marks and then how to control making the letter or or G or A. And, and somehow we forget that that took a long time. And we think when we're grown up and we're at university that we should be able to do these things like that. It's not the same for everybody. Some will take it, you know, in hand very quickly, but others might not. Doesn't mean they're any better or worse. In the end, come three years, five years down the line, they may be equally brilliant everybody learns at a different rate and I think that's the bit I'm going to find more challenging maybe if that makes sense I can't read the intensity of a flame on the screen the same way you know because a camera can't pick it up yeah it must be quite a bizarre experience and I'm not entirely sure how going forward that's going to be for a hands-on subject but maybe it will create quite unusual results because it's something that has never been taught in that way before it will. I know I watched a video that World Skills, Steve, Steve Jinks, that's uh, a liaison in World Skills. He put together a soldering video over the summer. And yeah, I mean, it was it was very good. But I kind of questioned myself, was it really good? Because I understand what he's talking about. What would it be like to a novice? Yeah, I mean, that's another body that are I haven't mentioned. But World Skills have been really trying to put themselves in a space where they want to support Northern Ireland in forwarding the makers of the future 16 plus. And I know one of our students, Joel Smith at Ulster, um, took part in the huge big NEC event in November, which was, I mean, it was mind blowing to go and see it. Uh, and that was only six makers from around the UK were selected to do that. And there he was constructing his pendant piece away in competition with other makers from, you know, Goldsmiths Training Centre, Scotland. And you just realise, you know, we we don't talk about this or celebrate those kinds of stories anywhere near enough. So, and I guess that's a part of why we as a group have come together to try and bring those out into the open more and discuss the careers that could be rather than STEM subjects should be STEAM and we all know it. Where's yeah. art and design there? And the evidence does say that that creative art and design element is missing and they know it's a big void in, you know, up in Stormont and over in government. They know it's there and maybe it's, we've just got to force them to address it because it should be STEAM, not STEM. We're missing art and design. Leonardo, where would he be? He'd be shoved at the back of the class with his dunce hat on. He'd never have made what he did if he'd lived now. And that's shocking to think about, really shocking. Absolutely. What do you do that is completely different from your practice? What do you do to unwind? Oh dear, Robin, I'm gonna sound like you where I don't switch off. I don't. Well, I meet with friends uh, and obviously that's been tricky during lockdown although we yeah. have had some you know neighbors in the garden you know because the garden's big enough to be able to socially distance when allowed and I think just you know that that's a big part of life traveling was yeah obviously that can't happen in lockdown and maybe meringue rings are my future <laughs> sounds delicious <laughs> I do quite like 
filmmaking now. You know, when I have time, I quite enjoy it. Uh, and I remember going years ago, uh, the old hubby and Kate Smith were having a chat in Dean's one night with Michael. He does a cook or did a cookery course. So he uh, bought me for my birthday <laughs> four classes or four sessions with Michael Dean upstairs, at, you know, just on Howard Street. But it ended up, it was hilarious. It was just the best fun. We didn't cook a thing, we ate and we watched. And the last night was like Babette's Feast. What grew out of that was an understanding of the very basic principles of the most important side to cooking, making good stock, yeah. having good ingredients. And I actually really, as a consequence, thanks, Michael Dean, I do enjoy cooking. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I did before. Garth was the... He could cook Chinese really well, so I just dumped on him and did the basics. But now I actually do enjoy experimenting and cooking. And maybe mine and Meg's little collaborations on videos might go somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. never know. Um, they were good fun, so you'd never say never. What is the last piece of locally made craft that you've bought? Oh, I'm not very good at buying. Probably um, a wooden bow by Mark Hanley, I think. Is that? I might have bought since then. I'm sure I've bought student work. I just, I, I, I'm really bad at paying attention to what I do. I've bought local artwork um, and I would buy at the student shows. And so I would have prints and paintings and Derek. No, Derek I didn't buy from because at the time I couldn't afford it. I had other things, being a mom with a daughter. But at some point I'd like to, maybe we'll do a work swap, which isn't the same as buying, to be honest. But I suppose it's still consuming and showing appreciation and value as well. So it is. it is. You know, every time you bump into people, even when you're doing exhibitions elsewhere, keep saying you're going to do work swaps. <laughs> sometimes they happen and sometimes the intention's there, but you never get the time to get around to it. But yeah. If people wanted to find out more about your work or get in touch, how could they do that? At the moment, I'm so bad, Gemma. I did start on a web page and it defeated me this last summer so <laughs> Instagram really is how I am doing things at the moment and I'm getting the hang of it uh, yeah, although you're doing great quiet, I've been a bit quiet over the last few weeks because I've had other pressing things to be up to but yeah and uh that's that's really the way and that's I can't even remember the address is it a-n-e-b-o-y-l-a-n that's my yeah, Instagram that's Site. so and is it a site or a page yeah. I get so exercised mum stop saying that it's a page it's a site <laughs> that's where it is and I guess that's the easiest way at this point to get in touch with me because I try to keep a check on it every week <laughs> so brilliant well I feel like I could genuinely talk to you for hours and hours on end we need to get a funding thing done, don't we? Yes, absolutely. We <laughs> for another episode or another series. But thank oh. you so much for, for joining us and imparting your wisdom upon us. It has been lovely to talk to you. You're welcome. It's lovely to be able to spend a bit of time with you. And um, yeah, I best get back to the grindstone on the Saturday, huh? What did you say about taking time out? It doesn't exist. <laughs> it's gone. I'm not sure. It, I just think our heads are too busy. What else would we be doing? <laughs> What a wonderful episode. Thank you so much, Anne, for sharing your making journey. Thank you also to the Arts Council of Northern Ireland who have kindly funded our second series through their Artist Emergency Programme. Coming up for episode seven, we are making conversations with Potter Adam Free. Don't miss it next on Thursday, the 10th of September, 2020.